Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Griggs, and alongside me today, I have Eric Perner from Rep Provisions. Thank you for joining me, Eric. Yes, thanks for having me, Ryan. Appreciate it. So, just I know we just met today, and just from the the, the brief bio you sent, it's uh, the background is really interesting. And so, before digging into everything that you're doing currently, I would love to hear just your backstory leading up to what you're doing now, because you started in um, equestrian. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. I right out of high school, I um, was uh, working on a thoroughbred racehorse ranch. And um, at that time, I was about the right size. I said, hey, why don't you try riding, you know, and, and become a professional jockey. So I went and trained in California for a year to do that. Came back to the Midwest, rode kind of all over the country for about 10 years. Um, so really developed a, an understanding of how to communicate with a large animal, right? So, um, you know, previous to that, I did grow up on a cattle ranch, so I already had a bit of a background, but that really drove home this, 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 this interesting concept between um, a man and horse trying to accomplish the same thing. So a predator riding a prey animal and communicating for the same goal, I always was fascinating to me. And hmm. how do how do you know talk to that animal just through your hands and accomplish the same goal was really a thrill for me um and so did that for 10 years it was a great experience but um a time it did take a toll on the body it, it can be brutal um maintaining weight and then just kind of all the injuries that come along with it i've broken so many bones along the way that it was time to make a change and so I quit that cold turkey. I went back to college, always had this really great appreciation for nature and physics and, you know, what we, when we live in this amazing universe, when I look up in the sky and I see the heavens, I love to dream about that thing. So I went back and got hmm. a, an engineering degree. It ended up that that engineering degree took me to an oil, the oil and gas exploration and production operations, um, and did that for 15 years. And that really taught me, you know, number one, this kind of need for energy, but the consequence of harvest, of trying to get that energy out of the ground and um, really, you know, begin to get worried after a while of the consequences of how we, how we get our energy and how we produce energy, kind of a very kind of extractive means. And that led me to finding solutions for, things to repair some of this damage that we've created, you know, um, over time. And that led me to back to my background in agriculture and then beginning to understand how these natural cycles cycle carbon in massive amounts. And so uh, that kind of took me to understanding and learning more about regenerative farming and ranching. That was just beginning to be a big hot topic. And it really inspired me to want to do things different and kind of want to live differently. So quit that job. Uh, I, I had my own ranch at the time and I really began to develop this ranch that I'm at today around regenerative and holistic management principles. Those were carbon really cycles in this beautiful cycle of life. And I thought, you know, this is a great idea, but how do I really take this to the masses of people and help it scale to not just mine, but to many millions of acres, ideally, and thought I'll create a brand around that. So that's where Rep Provisions, our direct consumer brand, was envisioned and mm -hmm. began that brand in 2020. 
And we've just seen um, every year that kind of business doubling. So we know we are resonating with that consumer from, from the perspective of health of the land is health for our bodies. And I think since COVID, these two components really are accelerating with the consumer that these are important for us. And they're kind of demanding that, that, that product. Uh, they think, you know, we, we meat gets all the time in the headlines that it's bad, you know, that the methane from beef cattle are bad for the environment, that they damage the environment. But, you know, that can be in certain cases, but in regenerative farming and ranching, using these natural principles, it's the exact opposite. The fact is these large ruminants always coexisted in these natural cycles and they were part of uplifting it. And so I really want to showcase that meat, like we can have our steak and eat it too. It doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be fake meat. It doesn't have to be, you know, a full vegetarian diet that we can have this, you know, beautiful cycle in nature and really improve our environment through animals. Um, it's part of how we manage ecosystems. And um, it's just taking this holistic approach of how we do that, that I think is, is critical to get people to understand. That's great. That's a lot of, a lot to unpack there. I guess to start, just taking it back to whenever you were growing up on a ranch, were you very hands-on or what was that experience like? Yeah, we, uh, my dad, I mean, you could, he was very much kind of, um, um, we had beef cattle, we had sheep, we had goats, chick, we did everything, you know, just off and on. And it was a very small farm. My dad was just a hobby farmer, but even back then he instilled in me these regenerative farming principles, even before that was a thing. So he was kind of the one guy in our community that was doing things different. Like he wasn't spraying fertilizer. He wasn't um, spraying uh, pesticides. He was doing everything organic. And he really preached the importance of our native perennial grasses and forbs, how critical they are to soil health and that you need to manage these things really well. So he was really, uh, in some cases, in that in that age, you know, this is in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, he's kind of ahead of his time in these management principles. So he really instilled that in me. So that all came back full circle when he passed away. And then I started kind of managing my own ranch. And, and it just so happened at the same time, these regenerative farming and ranching principles, which I learned as a kid, are now becoming more important more than ever. And so um, it just shows me that my dad was always right all along, even though as a kid, you think, eh. What, what can I learn from him? But um, so that was kind of my, my story. Do you know what, like, was he always that way? Or how did he learn about those practices? Or what made him make that decision? Because that, at that time, um, I mean, that's way ahead of your time, essentially. <laughs> yeah, no, it was complete opposite of what everyone was doing. And everyone thought he was crazy. You know, how can you eat grass fed beef? And, you know, that, so he really got criticized, but it, he didn't matter. He knew it was right in his heart. And I don't know how that came about. He grew up in the city. And so he saved his nickels and dimes from the time he was six, seven years old to purchase his own ranch. Hmm. And it was just in him, I guess. I, I don't really know. He just knew the difference between right and wrong. And he, that's what he really staked his claim on um, kind of how we manage land in conjunction with wildlife and in conjunction with our native perennial grasses and forbs and things of that nature. So I don't know what inspired him. It was just something inside of him that spoke to him deeply. That's awesome. Um, I guess to transition a little bit and going back to your saying, we can have our steak and eat it too. And um, just on the topic of, of a lot of the media and online is just really pushing 
climate change and the fact that animals are causing that and they're the biggest driving force of of climate change and since you've extensively worked in the in the world of of energy and now you're working in regenerative agriculture I, I was just hoping that you could just talk more on why that's not the actual true case why um yeah why that's not actually the biggest reason and in fact you're saying the inverse could be true because there are practices that are bad with animals that aren't good for the environment, but how you're going about it is not that. So yeah, I was hoping you could shed light on that. Yeah. I, I think, I guess one address, you know, the main thing, you know, when you talk about climate change, it's super controversial. It seems as whatever your politics is, is what you believe is right or wrong. Right. So I, I, I just to address that real quickly, um, and I'm op- I believe I'm an open book. I don't have a definitive opinion too solid one way or the other, but I use logic and reasoning to form an opinion, not from my news source or not from my political leader. Um, as an as an engineer, that's just how I think critically about things, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about uh, anthropogenic climate change, so that caused by humans, which there is a huge debate on, you've got to step back and look at it a bit objectively and think about, okay, what is our atmosphere made up of, right? And we know roughly the, the, the atmosphere is made up of approximately 70%, 76% nitrogen, 23% oxygen. Um, that's 99% of the gases in our atmosphere, 99%, of which those 99% do not have the ability to trap infrared heat. So we're only talking about that 1%, that extremely thin layer around the earth that actually controls everything, right? And so if you increase CO2, for example, or methane, it stands to reason even a small amount could make some changes, but we're not just doing small amounts, we're doing a hundred million tons of CO2 daily. So over decades, you, you logically, you would think that might alter things. <laughs> so I just accept the fact that probably we're having an effect on our environment and probably we are warming the environment. Now, the question we got to ask, what are the consequences of that? Those are things I don't know. And I don't, and I think a lot of people can surmise that they know, but I, I don't necessarily believe that. Um, but what I do know is that throughout um, history, that large numbers of animals existed on this planet in perfect harmony with our climate. And I would just urge people to go back, um, even in recent geological history, which uh, is little as 10,000 years ago, which is nothing, that's a blip of time in geologic history to the Pleistocene, in mm-hmm. which massive, no, I mean ungodly massive numbers of you know, bison and different varieties of bison and mastodons and sloths and lions and horses and everything existed in North America on this prairie. And they were not causing climate change. They existed for thousands of years now. Um, and that, that holds true even through, you know, 10,000 posts when, you know, Native Americans lived on this planet and millions and millions upon head of bison roamed the prairies. So they really existed in this, this harmony with nature, which cycled nutrients in a really big way. One of those being carbon and you know, that, 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 you know, temperatures were stable. So we, we kind of know these things. So to the fact to say that animals are causing climate change, we know is not true. Now we can say our management of agriculture, extractive agriculture, and partly some animals can be 
um, part of that, that it could be causing some degree of increasing greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. So that I can accept. What I can accept is, you know, that animals are the sole cause. Um, and just think of it in this way, uh, in North America alone, there's roughly uh, 400 million acres of agriculture monocrop land. So where you grow one crop, mostly corn and soy. And we think about that cycle of carbon in a cornfield, which, yeah, it may cycle carbon for, you know, four or five months out of the year. And then that's it. It's, it's only one crop is allowed to exist and only that crop, not anything else. No grasshoppers, no bugs, no rabbits, no moles, no nothing. It literally that only one crop. So it's only adding um, carbon in that soil for a few months out of the year, then it's plowed and all that's released again. So that is not a good way to cycle nutrients in that soil or cycle life or carbon-based life. So I got to believe like comparing that to grazing beef cattle on native pasture, like what's worse for the environment. <laughs> and a lot of talk is we want to go vegan. Well, let's, I mean, we're not thinking through this clearly in my opinion. No. And you, I mean, you brought up a lot of great points. I'm almost done reading Will Harris's book and he mentions how whenever he was doing a conventional way, every single day he went out to his pastures to find stuff to kill. And that just, just him saying like, just reading that in itself is just wild thinking to where it's just so against nature to where you just got nature. It's so diverse. And now you're just trying to have one crop and everything else that used to exist there is essentially gone and to make it as efficient and easy on you and to max yields, all of those things. And it's just interesting, uh, the shift on that. But then also, uh, you brought up a great point, just the place to see an era. Cause that I went down a huge rabbit hole and just learning about that era. And it's so fascinating, especially just with bison, the bison ladder fronds. Those are really cool animals, but, uh, I mean, in the 1800s, whenever the bison were roaming the Great Plains, you could be able to hear a stampede from a mile away. You could point your gun and you're most likely going to hit a bison. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, that's just wild. That used to exist now because now I remember growing up as a kid driving in the Midwest because that's where I'm from. All you see is corn. And that's all I would say for miles and miles is just corn, corn, corn. And that obviously we're seeing that the the drastic consequences of all of that. Um, and then that also just the quality of the food itself is not nearly as good. And I remember looking at, at the Rep Provisions website, you include a, a bunch of awesome graphs. So I'm curious, how did you go about the testing of that? And then why did you pick those specific, uh, like the polyunsaturated fats and the, the, the omega ratios and those things? Those specifically, you know, how did you go about deciding to have those on the website to showcase just anyone that goes there? Well, because I think part of our poor health outcomes, um, which are severe in, in the United States, like a kid born today is more likely to have a chronic disease than not. I mean, this is sad. <laughs> Everything's accelerating from heart disease to diabetes to all these things. And I, there's just, you know, no one could convince me otherwise that it's because of our diet. And when these shifts really started to accelerate, which I would, you know, say, you know, mid 80s or so, 
This is exactly the same time they came out with this thing called the food pyramid, which is a high carb, low fat diet. And it, the shift was away from animal fats. And so that's when, and, and then I think there's a, there's a nice, I mean, you know, I'm, there's a pretty good correlation between our bad health outcomes and that food pyramid and a shift away from animal fats. Um, and that shifted our diet towards low fat products, but what they replace the animal fats with, they replaced it with corn oil, soybean oil, canola oil, all these things from these monocrops, which we, you know, we talked about the negative outcomes from that. And what are these fats extremely high in? They're extremely high in omega sixes. And I think there's a very good connection for it, you know, the way I understand it, that the human diet did not evolve on an omega six to three ratio of 30 to one. It was probably one to one. And this stands to reason. Like if we were, you know, for the, the, the thousands of years of human evolution, we were foragers mostly, and we got what we could eat. And that came with meat and maybe seasonal berries and some tubers and things of that nature. But our omega-6 to omega-3 uh, ratio was most likely one-to-one. -one. And so kind of drawn, reading between the lines there, you know, it's not hard to believe that this polyunsaturated fatty acid, the omega-6 one, which tends to be more inflammatory for our bodies, is part of really bad outcomes. And I think we need to get back to animal fats. But I will say, I think we need to get back to the right animal fats. And other things we know, what shifts that omega-6 to omega-3 ratio higher is animals that are fed tons and tons of grain. So beef cattle who are spending you know, the majority of their life on grass, but then the last 90 to 120 days are fed a straight grain diet, it really shifts that omega-6 to omega-3 ratio to a much higher, uh, as much as 10 or 12 to 1. But we've measured straight off grass, our beef, and it is the perfect ratio one-to-one. -one. We also know that chicken and pork, that ratio gets shifted when they're fed large amounts of grain in concentrated operations and that they can be as high as 25 and even 30 to one ratios of omega-6 to omega-3. So adding all that, plus all the low-fat garbage and the seed oils and, you know, and all that stuff, it's really skewed our diet heavily in omega-6s. Um, but we also know when we raise animals such as pork and chicken on grass, even though they do get some grain, that ratio is gonna be much lower than conventional operations. So really getting these things right, I think has resonated with our consumer base and folks like Paul Saladino and others really get that word out. And, it, and even, you know, it's just, it's, a, it's one of these concepts, again, when you step back and you look at it, it just makes sense, right? Um, I don't care what studies out there telling me low-fat diet's good. That's bullshit because we can see the obvious data that it's not. So I'm, I don't buy into that, but I can buy into logic and reason. And when you tell me humans evolved on an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of one-to-one, that's very believable. And we probably need to get back to that in our food choices. Yeah, that's so spot on, especially with kids. It's a shame that now two-thirds of their diet is ultra-processed garbage. It's just... Yep. Absolute travesty because not only is that just wreaking havoc on your, your body long term, but it completely alters your brain chemistry with food to where it makes you addicted. And because I so I worked on a farm last fall, 100% of my diet was on a farm. It's the first time in my life I've ever experienced anything like that. 
And it was maybe after three to five days, I stopped thinking about any of that junk. And, and it's not like I, I gave away taste because you can still make such delicious nutrient dense food. Not only that, when you think of burgers, for example, or pizza, or even just fries, you can make that all in a healthy way. If, if you have the quality ingredients and that's one of the big things I, I want to do with Regenesance is just raising awareness behind all of that. Because once you have that food, it really changes your perception of it all. Um, cause I go back to this one specific meal I had last year at the first ranch I had visited and my mouth still salivates this day thinking about that because it just was so different than anything I had ever experienced in any grocery store in my life. And I mean, that's why I just, we need to get back to that because the more you have that food, the less you'll think about the other garbage that is plastered on our face everywhere you drive where there's just fast food everywhere. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a huge challenge with all that. And then another thing, you brought up a good point about the the PUFA ratios for, for animals. That was very eye-opening for me, especially with chicken, because they are, a lot of the times they're, they're fed high corn and soy and uh, other grains. And you're right. I remember seeing graphs. It was up to 30 to one. And that's, whenever I read that, I don't remember the last time I've really bought in, inside the grocery store for chicken and definitely pork. That's a while ago, just because they are fed just horrendous diets from Smithfield Foods and, and others that are huge for the pork industry. Um, but yeah, what you feed them is so crucial because you feed them unhealthy diets, they're unhealthy animals, and that's going to be unhealthy for us. And it's just a, a very vicious cycle. Yeah, makes total sense. Yeah. And we've, we've, uh, you know, the, the, as far as, as pork production, we raise all ours on pasture where they have open access to grass, nuts, pecans. Yes, they still get some grain, but we have eliminated corn and soy, which we believe are the biggest contributors to that ratio. Um, and the same with their chicken. We um, are eliminating corn and soy from their diets and they are on pasture all the time. So that right there, while they are still fed, supplemented with some starches, we, we, we know that ratio is going to be much better just from the fact they're on grass and have open you know, access to, to grass and getting that their feet on grass immediately makes a huge difference. So I'm curious that the feet, whenever you were deciding on what to, to feed and like supplement your, your pigs and, and chickens with, because it's also an interesting conversation just with the feed. Um, cause a lot of it is corn and soy, but I know there are trade-offs and with financing and how much work goes into farming, it's, it's very difficult and I know for certain farms, the one I worked on, they, they did feed corn and soy for their chickens and, and others. Um, but for one, it could be that's just the best available for them, the cost. Yeah. Um, there's just so much that goes into just all of that. So I'm curious, yeah, how'd you go about deciding what you supplemented your chickens and, and pigs with? Um, we, so it's, it's, it is, it's a huge challenge and it's expensive, you know, to get the right feed because typically that's not what's been readily available. Um, it just so happened that we had a, a, um, a guy in North Texas that could source for reasonable costs, corn and soy free, uh, feed for us and our, 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 uh, farming partners. So that was, that just came about last year. And we jumped on it because I was like, oh, man, I've been looking for this for years and couldn't find it. And so we found that and we want to keep improving that and finding other ways and better feeds that keep improving upon that ratio. Um, so that's kind of but but eliminating corn and soy was a big one. It was super difficult. 
Um, it was going to be really difficult to do it economically, but we got that done. So that's step one. And we want to continue to, you know, do research around what is the best diet for pork and chicken. Um, and I think we're still coming to that. Um, we're coming to a solution, a perfect solution that we can get that ratio, just like our grass fed beef, not quite there yet, but we are far better than the competition. I can tell you that. <laughs> so with rep provisions, how many, I guess, yeah, can you just explain, because I know you're saying it's the, it's a direct consumer and you source just from local farms. Um, I guess if you can just talk more on that process of, do you vet the farms and ranches before working with them? Uh, do you continue to add new ranches and farms or, yeah, what's that process like? Yes. Yeah, so we, we kind of have, our standard is we want to be regenerative farms and ranches. And so we uh, vet all of our farms through um, a process called ecological outcome verification. This is developed by the Savory Institute out of Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> and so we use that science behind understanding is land really regenerating or not. So their land is measured every year through these ecological principles. And soil samples are taken every fifth year to measure changes in soil carbon. And so, yeah, it's, um, is it the, you know, I, I, it's the best metric out there, but, um, for us to have kind of actual kind of data on the track. And I think that'll evolve over the years and it's changing rapidly on how we measure soil health on how we measure ecosystem health. And we're going to stay up on the latest technology that allows us to advance that concept of regenerating land. Um, but yes, th these are conversations we have with our farmers before they get in that network. We say, Hey, will you be committed to becoming, let us use ecological outcome verification on your land. And if they don't agree with that, then we don't, we don't even, it's not even worth talking about, but you know, for the most part, people love it because it gives them valuable data points because if their land is improving, that's improving their bottom line. And so it's a win-win for the farmer network and for the consumer, in my opinion. With that too, are you, are you working together just to strategize and just, especially just moving the needle and, and just the whole space of regenerative agriculture, because it's not a, a, a real, I mean, it's picking up a lot of steam. It's not a completely new term, but it, I, cause I had first heard about it last January and just comparing November 28th of this year to whenever I heard of it last year, it's crazy how fast it's, it's grown. So I'm curious if with your network, um, yeah, do you, do you work together in just terms of trying to improve each other's farms and ranches and just trying to work together? Um, I didn't know what that relationship would be like. Yeah, I definitely love to share learnings that I've taken away from my ranch that, Hey, this has worked for me and the other farmer network the same. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, constantly trying to kind of educate, you know, when we visit these land bases, like here's where you're weak here, you know, if you made these changes, perhaps you'd have better outcomes, not forcing anything on anyone right now, but kind of just gently nudging, like some of these processes could really help you and cut your input costs. Um, for example, like on my home ranch here, like I, I was on a, a big mission to not try to cut hay, right? Because it's so expensive. And part of my mission also is to, I, I feel like um, in a lot of the farms and ranches, there's just this concept of just blanket mowing your entire property with no sense or reason about why you're doing that. And it's been, it can be very damaging to grasslands. 
And so I've kind of staked my claim. I don't own a tractor, by the way. Hmm. I have an ATV that I get around everything. And, and, I, and I did that strategically because I don't want to be reliant on too much heavy equipment. Yeah, there's some parts that you do need, but I really don't want to use these really hurtful principles on land. I want to find other ways. So basically how I manage my land now is uh, we do um, rotational grazing with, with the cattle and the pigs and the, and the goats in this kind of nice cycle. And then anywhere where I need additional impact, where I'm getting encroachment from woody species or blackberries or things that I need to kind of help knock back, we do controlled burns on strategic, you know, patch burns. And that's all you need. And my, my grasses have improved. I grow green grass all winter now. Um, and so this will be the first year, I believe I'm going to make the whole year without any hay for the cattle. So they will graze strictly on these native perennial pastures with the underlying green, um, um, you know, uh, 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 cool season grasses that grow under that canopy of the natives because they're insulated. So they continue to grow all year. So it's really been a great boon for me, but it's also been a great boon for wildlife. Um, just the amount of deer and birds that we have, we're, we're a certified Audubon bird friendly ranch as well. Hmm. And just the volumes of life that exist here that literally do not, Ryan, I'm not, they do not exist across the fence. They're, you know, everything comes here because the habitat's here and having this, seeing this beautiful cycle between raising animals, making a living on the land, but still having all this incredible wildlife as well, really brings a lot of joy to a farmer and rancher to see that. And when you talk about, when you talked earlier about how farmers and ranchers, their whole life is, what do I need to kill today? That's hideously depressing to me. And I, I've seen a study, perhaps you've seen it, that farmers have some of the highest suicide rates, you know, maybe for various reasons, but there's a lot of lacking joy there when your whole concept is, what do I need to kill today? I mean, I think it robs you of your joy and your health. And so this beautiful cycle between with regenerative farming and ranching not only improves the land health, improves our body's health, it improves our psychological health. So I just, you know, I truly believe that because I feel it. And people who come out here also feel it. They're like, you know, this just feels different. And it does. It brings this kind of really joy to you to, to experience it. No, that's so great. I didn't even really think about that. I keep going. I've gone back to this again. But Will Harris's book, too, he was talking about he that was kind of one of his wake up calls to where he started noticing just the lack of nature, especially compared to his upbringing. And then whenever he switched to regenerative practices and, and as time went on, that revamped up to where all of the wildlife came back. And that has to be a really cool feeling, especially because if like you were yeah. mentioning compared to your neighbors, that the fact that how they're going about it, it's, yeah. uh, it it's it, yeah. yeah, you either attract or detract. So I think that's just really interesting. And, and Oh, go ahead. Yeah, well, I visited Will's. He uh, several years ago. I was visiting. I had to speak there at White Oak Pastures, and um, Will gave me a tour of the ranch with some other um, friends. And um, I, he he put me up in a little uh, cabin that he has on a lake there. And I will all I'll never forget when I um, unpacked my luggage to go to that cabin. Literally, there were just millions of bats swarming, and I was like. <laughs> my god it was incredible like just the amount of life that existed there was amazing so he's right you know you see the difference you feel the difference it's and it's it's a cool thing to see and that's why i mean the the conventional practices it's very anti-nature and then 
nature yeah. responds back to you to where now it's gone. And then on the flip side, whenever you work alongside nature, aka what you're doing and Will Harris is doing, nature responds back and it comes back in full force. And so I think that's such a beautiful thing. On the So you mentioned about controlled burning. I wanted to briefly talk about that because, again, for me personally, uh, I was so disconnected with just the whole world of agriculture until essentially last year. And I didn't know too much about control burning. So I was hoping that you could talk more on that and why you did that and why it's an important thing to implement. Well, I, I think partly, you know, how this country of um, North America, the Great Plains specifically evolved, that there's just no doubt fire was a part of that process. That it happened naturally. You know, um, a dry season would happen, a lightning strike and a huge blaze would take off and it would burn large. How often that happened, maybe we're less sure of, but we know it happened. And um, when and when humans kind of fenced everything off and, you know, there's a fire department on every corner and, and for good reason, but we don't allow any burns to happen. And this was always part of that natural cycle. So I'm just trying to bring back and replicate that natural cycle. But what, what I was telling you earlier is I'm trying to do anything to manage this property without putting heavy equipment on it, not adding more soil compaction, not mowing and wiping everything out in one fell swoop, but try any other way to management that I know is natural that will benefit it long term. And what I've seen is when I do these control burns, the grasses respond unbelievable, especially the native perennial grasses and the forbs, like how they come back overnight, like is incredible. Like I've never seen anything like it. So I know it works. Now that's not to say it can't be overdone and too many people can overdo it. But when it's part of, you know, a, a several year cycle, this is an extremely healthy thing that needs to happen. Um, and, you know, we, an, another thing is, uh, there's a lot of talk about how we've got to plant trees and we've got to have more forests and, and all this um, kind of concept about, about planting more trees, planting more trees. You know, I, I think there's a case to be made that the amount of trees that existed, especially during the Pleistocene, were nothing like we see today. Like it was sparse, it was grassland. And I think we've shifted far, at least in my part, I'm in the Cross Timbers ecoregion, at least here, I believe the volume of trees we have today are a lack of management and a lack of fire. So those things that suppress these woody species and really benefit the native grasses, we've shifted it where it's all trees. And they're so, even on my property, I fight it continually. Like it's impossible without fire to keep it at bay, but they're, the, the, the forest just choke themselves out, right? And then what I see in these closed canopy forests is bare soil very lim limited life that can exist there. This should have been grassland under the right natural cycles, but is converted to overgrown dense forest that isn't healthy. We can't grow food on it. So I think if we start shifting some of these areas back that weren't historically solid forests back to grasslands, this is how you scale regenerative farming and ranching. There's so much more available acreage out there, millions and millions of acres. But I think we've disrupted natural cycles so poorly that, um, and all we talk about is more trees, more trees. I don't know, Ryan, in my eco region, <laughs> that's not the case. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's a good point. I mean, again, with regenerative agriculture, it's not one system fits all. You're supposed to understand the land that you steward. You're supposed to understand that the native species, as you talked about, the, the native grasses, because whenever you try to implement non-native grasses, then that actually messes up the, the microbiology of the soil. And that's how you can get all kinds of nasty weeds and everything else. As a, Again, nature always responds. That's why I find this agriculture so fascinating because if you actually pay attention, it, it makes so much sense why things happen the way they do. Uh, so yeah, that's just, I just want to add that tidbit. And on the topic of, of the Savory Institute, um, you've mentioned that, do you do education with the, the Savory Institute to, to where you're doing grazing education as well? I, I have in the past. Um, I've been so busy with so many other kind of operations that I'm, I'm working in that I haven't had the ability to do it. But yes, I have. And I, I'm a big promoter of theirs and a big believer. Um, like I said, I think Alan Savory is really the one that's kind of led, you know, if you, if you trace it back far enough, it was him, you know, even in the 70s, you know, preaching about holistic management. So I really give him all the credit in kind of shifting us to a more regenerative future in farming and ranching. What was the education like where folks just coming to visit and you're just essentially showing hands-on principles from that? Yeah, yeah, they do. And we do, you know, we have get togethers with um, um, social media influencers and we do some teaching and training. But, you know, <clears throat> the bigger goal of my ranch was to be an education center where I would bring in other farmers and ranchers and train them on the methods of holistic management. You know, unfortunately, life gets in the way and, and that dream is going to be pushed to the side for now. But that's part of the bigger vision is that we can begin to develop, um, you know, trainings for farmers and ranchers to shift regenerative practices. Another group that I'm also deeply involved in, and I'm on their producer panel, is the Noble Research Institute, which is also training in regenerative farming and ranching principles. A great organization that I'm deeply involved with as well, and they're um, just south of me in Ardmore, Oklahoma. So uh, they're another great resource and their sole goal is to train farmers and ranchers in regenerative farming and ranching methods. And they're doing amazing work as well. Is that for the already current farmers and ranchers or, or folks that are interested, like all of the above? All of the above. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And they really work cool. with a lot of existing ranchers, but yeah, they're having great progress. They've got a great um, training already mapped out for folks that want to participate and learn more. Um, so yeah, th these groups are beginning to expand. So that's really exciting because we need the training component to show people how to manage more regeneratively and get the science backed behind why it's important and why it's helpful, um, from an economic standpoint and a soil health standpoint. That's a good point on, on, um, the, the training specifically, because one of the ranchers I visited last year, I remember talking to him in Colorado, him mentioning multitude of times where uh it's also interesting with our society right now and a lot of people are starting to wake up to not happy with where they're at in a, in a major city unfulfilling work and then seeing the push of agriculture and, and the the topic of just getting off the grid or living in, in a rural area and having your own land to, to work and then he mentioned a lot of times people did exactly that but they didn't realize how difficult the work actually is and they lasted maybe like a year and then they they sold the land or they just stopped actually doing farming and still live there. So that's the critical component is huge for that too, because then that just really sets them up well 
whenever they want to start their actual farm or ranch or, or hobby farm. Yeah. And so that's great. And that was called, what was that called again? Uh, Noble Research Institute. Noble Research Institute. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, mention you did mention, you know, you know, people going to land getting frustrated because of the amount of work it is. I mean, this is true. It is. And we need to work on, you know, that quality of life component to get young farmers interested. Um, and while, you know, I've, I, I am a big believer though, that, you know, yeah, you know, it doesn't have to be overly burdensome on work, although it maybe is from the start. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, um, wasn't expecting anyway. Uh, what I would say is that we've got to get to a point where that quality of life improves and that uh, technology can be a part of this, helping facilitate a better quality of life for regenerative farmers and ranchers. With technology then, um, I'm trying to think how I can phrase this question. I guess, how do you see technology helping that and, and e uh, I guess easing the, the burden of the folks? I just, I think there's things I'm working on. There's things other people, folks are working on um, part of the biggest hurdle is how do you manage large herds on land and move them in a regenerative manner and, you know, every day. So there's other things that, that are coming, I believe that will help facilitate the movement of large herds in a regenerative manner where it doesn't require humans involved and that they can be remotely monitored and that soil health can be remotely monitored through, you know, lots of different things and through AI and through, you know, satellite based systems. So these things are progressing very, very quickly. And I would just say, you know, we and there's a huge shift in technology happening. I know you see it. It's just talked about every day and it's happening at an unreal pace. What I would say is regenerative farming and ranching needs to be a part of that and use it to its advantage. The fact is we had another big boom in technology in the 1950s, right? all this access to fossil fuel, huge equipment, but we use that technology probably not in the best way to wipe out all the land. Let's use this next jump in technology in more of a holistic way and think about how it can benefit nature and kind of merge it together that it benefits it. So that's that would just be my case for using technology, but in the right way this time. I love that. And especially, uh, I mean, the education and awareness will be have to be vital for that because then with the advancement of technology, the big players that are already making this whole industry more centralized and um, doing it the unnatural way and, and worsening your land could be using that yeah. to advance that even more. And so that, that will be interesting to see how that plays out. Because I agree, I think that could be really huge and there's so much potential to, to help make your, your ranch more efficient, but not in the way that conventional agriculture tries to make their place more efficient. It's actually beneficial right. to, to the land. And so that's, that's great. So the last topic that I really, really had to with rep provisions, um, from the consumer standpoint, are they able to, uh, figure out wh whenever they buy from you, which farm or ranch that's coming from? Um, so because we're pretty small, um, you know, we only source from right now about five different family ranches. Um, majority of the beef comes from me and one other ranch. Um, majority of the pork comes from me and one other farm. And we talk about the, and the, and the chicken comes from one farm. Um, so we're not big enough now that, you know, um, you can mostly know where it came from at any given time, even though we don't specifically trace it back yet. 
that is a bigger vision. Um, it takes you know capital to do that, but I want to be able to folks be able to scan a barcode on their product and go to that ranch, know something about the soil health, know about that farmer, that rancher, where it was raised, how the animal was raised. Um, but it, it'll take me time to get there. That that is part of the bigger vision, though, and I think it's possible through technologies, just like we talked about. You know, through this iPhone, I can communicate with our customers every day if I want. Um, I can, they can order. So that's part of using technology now for small farmers and ranchers to get their product to market where this was not possible before. And I think partly because we didn't have this access to customers is why we ended up in such a centralized system because you couldn't, you had to do it that way. You didn't have any choice. Nobody knew, you know, how to get the food, but now we know how to do that. So that that's going to be, um, that's really going to, you know, move the needle for these small farms and ranches. But we need these aggregators like Rep Provisions to help facilitate that because everyone's expertise is not marketing and building a website and direct consumer, but it is farming, it is ranching. So um, we need to communicate these with these brands like Rep Provisions that are trying to do it the right way. I love that because I did a podcast with Amy Hay um, about a week and a half ago, and she her she does, I think it's called sell beef direct in Canada. And I didn't realize how little in America that actually is a thing. I think she mentioned eight or 9% total sells their beef direct and that blew me away. So that's really cool that you're doing that. And I love the vision that you have for all that. Um, especially with blockchain, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of, of blockchain specifically with the, the tracking aspect because different industry, but say you buy jewelry you have no idea where that came from what practices that took to get that and all and things like that so that actually would be awesome for agriculture's sake too and that would be cool to see um the last thing i had too i know i mentioned this beforehand to anyone that's interested i've i've bought this way before i reached out to eric about the podcast their products are amazing and i actually had cooked his 9010 beef with a couple of friends this past weekend and they actually were raving about it a lot. And so that's even just that too, was really cool to have that conversation with them. The fact that it wasn't just some beef that I'd bought from whole foods it was from a regenerative source that does it right. And they could clearly tell, and that was just one simple conversation. So just thinking about that, how that could just having those conversations consistently with your friends. And as time goes on, it's uh, it's really awesome. And so thank you for everything that you're doing and, and thank you for coming on. If you just wanted to plug any of your, your website or social media or anything like that, you can go ahead and do that. Yeah, people can find us on Rep Provisions on Instagram, Facebook, um, and then also www.eatrep.com is our website. You can see kind of all the products that we have listed um, and order direct off that website and then we'll ship it straight to your door. A lot of people think, yeah, how do you ship, you know, meat? Well, it's, it's really, it's not too hard. We can get from anywhere in, in Oklahoma, which is where we're located, our fulfillment center and reach anywhere in North America in two days or less. So, um, super convenient. If you want high quality meat, nutrient dense meat with the right fat ratios, then you got to order from a company like rep provisions that's doing it that way. And I think, you know, I would just say that, you know, if your health is important to you and and the health of the planet is important to you, then you need to search out and find these brands like Rep Provisions. I agree. Well, thank you for joining, Eric. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it so much.
You can find the full video on YouTube at Their Genesance.